So we are in the fourth week of our series, Your Choice, Your Voice. We're talking about our words, the impact they have on our lives, the impact they have on our relationships. And if you've been here throughout the series, you know that we're basing this on a verse out of Proverbs 18, 21. The, life has, uh, the tongue has the power of life and death. And in this series, we're talking about what is the process that we can go through that we begin to breathe more life and less death into our situations, into our relationships. And uh, by the way, I came across a quote this week that reminded me of just how hard and difficult this process is. Washington Irving said this, the tongue is the only tool that grows sharper with constant use. And that's true. So if you're thinking, when I get older, I'll mellow out a little bit. Washington Irving, it's never going to change. In fact, last week we saw in James chapter three, this issue of our tongue and the words that come out of our mouth, this is gonna be something that we battle every day of our lives because according to James, the tongue is humanly untamable. And so we hear that and we think, well, Mike, why even bother? I mean, we've all said things that got us in trouble and we've all walked away from those situations and said, wow, I learned a valuable lesson from that. I'm never going to do that again, right? I'm gonna make sure that never happens. A few days later, it happens again. And once again, we feel guilty. And once again, we feel remorseful. And we say, we're gonna learn from it so it never happens again, but nothing ever changes. And so eventually it's like we just stop trying, you know? Watch the use. In fact, you could almost come to the conclusion, I guess the only way I'll be able to control my tongue is to die. In fact, this, this is an actual tombstone in Hatfield, Massachusetts. Here it is. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 21st of May, 1771, began to hold her tongue. There you go. She got it under control. But you're like, is that the only option? Is that, I mean, that's kind of depressing. Well, this weekend, I want us to see that even though the tongue is humanly untamable, I want us to see that it is divinely, un, divinely tamable. I want us to understand that God can tame the tongue. Now, here's the question I want to unpack over the next few minutes. Is it entirely up to God to tame our tongue? Or do we, can we cooperate with God in the process. Let me begin by giving you a verse, uh, showing you a verse. If you have your Bibles this week, James chapter one, verse 26. If not, we'll put the verses on the screen. It might be easier just to follow. We're gonna be going all over the place this weekend. But it says in James chapter one, verse 26, those who consider themselves religious, and this is actually a good use of the word religious. It literally means in, in the Greek, serving God. For those who are serving God, and yet notice this, do not keep a tight rein on their tongue. So James makes it sound like we have a responsibility there. In your translation, it may say, you don't bridle the tongue. It says, they deceive themselves and their religion or their service to God is worthless. So it sounds like here James is saying that we bear some responsibility. So this weekend, I want you to see this. I want you to see that it is it's God's responsibility to tame the tongue. As we saw in James chapter 3, no human can do that. But it is our responsibility to keep a tight rein on the tongue. It's our responsibility to bridle the tongue. Let me give you an example. If I were to say this weekend, the soul is humanly un unsavable, I'm saying that we can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. But does that mean that we don't have any responsibility in the process of being saved? Of course we have some responsibility. According uh, to the Bible, we have to respond to the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, three days rose from the dead to verify he could take away our sins. We have to respond to the grace of God. We have to repent. We have to believe. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, we profess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Then we are saved. My point is simply this. We play a role in our salvation. And so when we talk about controlling the tongue, understand we play a role. We have the responsibility of bridling the tongue. We have the responsibility of keeping a tight rein on the tongue. But let me ask you a question. 
If you put a bridle on an untamed horse, is that horse going to immediately be tamed? Well, I can tell you, no. The answer to that question is no. In the same way, it is a process. It's a process to tame the tongue. But it's our job. It's our job as humans to put a bridle on it. So this weekend, I want to give you three words, just three words that will help you put a tight rein, bridle your tongue. They all begin with the same letter, uh, P. Hopefully this will help you. I was a P major, so things like this help me. So let me just give them to you this weekend. It's a pretty simple message. But now we're going to get into some application over the next few weeks. Here's the first one. Learn how to pause. Pause. James chapter one, verse 19 says this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I mean, have you ever gotten so angry, so upset at a situation without even thinking? I mean, the words just kind of exploded out of your mouth. I mean, it was like a 50 caliber machine gun. Just, you know. And then all of a sudden you got to go back. You got to clean up all the damage. You got to clean up all the mess. You got to clean up all the carnage. And you're like, I am so sorry. I should have never said that. But understand, often that happens because when something goes on, when something makes us angry, instead of pausing, instead of listening, we're busy thinking about our counterattack. We're not even listening to what the individual is saying. We're thinking about how we can respond. And so James says this, before you say something that you're going to regret later, and we all know this, James says, pause. Thomas Jefferson said this, when angry, count to 10. When very angry, count to 100. Mark Twain came along and revised it. He said, when angry, count to four. When very angry, swear. Let me give you another option. Before you speak, remember the word wait. Why am I talking? Just wait. Why am I talking? Instead of saying anything, just pause. I've had Laura say to me, and I know you're going to think this is hypothetical, but I think this has actually happened many times. I had Laura look me in the face and say, I am so mad. I am so upset at you right now. I can't even talk to you. We're going to have to have this conversation later. I'm telling you, that's exactly what James is saying here. He's saying, wait. Before you say something that you re regret, wait. Now, speaking of anger, let me just say something. I was actually going to say something this weekend about the current events that are going on in our country. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hurt. A lot of emotions have been stirred up. And it just feels like if you watch the news, the best thing to do is just not watch the news. But if you watch the news, don't you kind of sense that we're kind of on the brink of chaos, imploding, destruction by the well, Abraham Lincoln once said this America will never be destroyed from the outside if we falter and lose our freedoms it will be because we destroyed ourselves it kind of feels like we're turning on ourselves and we're destroying ourselves and so I was going to say something this weekend maybe some steps we could take toward you know lowering the rhetoric and understanding and, and understanding where people are coming from but you know what and I literally wrote it out word for word. I decided not to because it, it, the, the angst is so high right now, no matter what I say. No matter how I say it, it's gonna be twisted, it's gonna be misconstrued, it's gonna be misinterpreted, it won't be enough. So I just decided to not say what I was gonna say about it. Because I think the whole thing needs to die down a little bit before we can even address it. But see, this is what I know. 
If it's going on in our nation, it's going on in our church because we're divided people. We're a divided country. But I will say this, if you're hurt, that's why we exist. That's why we exist. Contact us, come see us. But if you're angry, my advice to you this weekend would be, wait, why am I talking? Why do you have to, why do you have to continue to up the rhetoric? I mean, if, if life and death are in the power of the tongue, and they are, why do we feel the need to speak so quickly? Because according to Solomon, Proverbs 18, 21, what we're getting ready to say, it's either going to result in life or it's going to result in death. Let me show you a couple of verses that support this idea of pausing or waiting. Proverbs 21, verse 23. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. That's some good wisdom. Here's another one. Proverbs 10, 19. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Again, it's my responsibility to guard my mouth. It's my responsibility to restrain, to bridle my tongue. Here's another one. Proverbs verse 27, 17, verse 27. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint and whoever has understanding is even tempered. Look at this. Even fools are thought wise if they just keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. What's the old saying? It's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I think it came from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. See, there are literally meetings I go into that if I have a folder or I have a notes, there are times I write on that folder at the top of my notes, don't talk. Don't talk. And part of the reason is Laura's trying to convince me that I actually have some weight in what I say. And she says, I'm a pro I process out loud a little bit. So if I say something, often they'll think, oh, Mike started the church. That's his opinion. Let's not even talk about it. It's not, that's not what I mean. But sometimes I process out loud. So instead of shutting down discussion, or sometimes I just know it's going to be a heated topic and we're not going to resolve it right now anyway. So I just put, don't talk. See, this verse says, hold your tongue. This is probably the Bible's way of saying, zip it. Zip it. And here's the thing. For some of us to zip it, we would have to literally hold our tongue. We would have to do this. Or, you know, maybe put a clamp, put a clothespin on our lips. Maybe that's, the, maybe that's the way we go, right? Here's another one. Proverbs 18, verse 13. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Have you ever done that? You ever finished somebody else's sentence? Maybe you're in a conversation and somebody says, man, I have got the greatest idea. And before they can even share it, so you respond, I know exactly what you're thinking. I had the same idea. And you tell them what they're thinking. And they listen patiently. And they're like, no, that's not what I was going to say. That's not what I was thinking. And you, then you just feel like a big idiot, right? Or men, how about this? And this might hurt a little bit. When your wife begins to tell a story, so we have friends who do this. When your wife begins to tell a story, men, do you jump in and tell the story? Right? And wives, I'm not going to let you off the hook. When your husband is telling a story, wait, ladies, you're bad about this. Do you correct all the details? You ever do that? Your husband's saying, hey, we were going to the beach. Honey, we were going to the mountains. Yeah, yeah, we were going to the mountains on Labor Day. Honey, it was actually July 4th. Okay, yeah, we were going to the mountains on July 4th, and we were going with Thomas Cindy. No, it was Rex and Boston. I mean, see, do you know what you're thinking? If it wasn't for me, I'd, he'd have got it all wrong. Do you know what he's thinking? She's smarter than I am. Do you know what everyone else listening is thinking? You're smarter than he is, see. And you ladies, you think you're doing a good thing and you're helping us, but what you're saying is you can't get it together. You're dropping the details. I gotta rip it, I gotta get in there and save your butt, right? You know what Solomon's advice would be? And you may have to stop doing it, just zip it. Learn to hold your tongue, right? Why am I talking? Pause before you say anything. That's, a, that's pretty simple. Here's the second one, ponder. By the way, this word ponder, it means to think 
It means to reflect. It means to process. And when we think of the word ponder, we think, oh yeah, Luke 2, the Christmas story. And it's a perfect word because you know what it's like at the end of Christmas Day? All the gifts have been eaten. All, uh, yeah, all the gifts have been opened. All the food has been eaten. You're exhausted. Everybody finally leaves and it's quiet and it's just you and the Christmas tree and you can kind of ponder, reflect. See, this is what I think happened on the first Christmas. Here's the angels. You got shepherds dropping by, bringing gifts. You got the animals to deal with. You got an innkeeper. There's no room. And finally, when it was all said and done and the day was over, I imagined that Mary bundled up little baby Jesus and sat down against one of those stable walls and she pondered. She reflected, she thought, she processed over what had just happened over the last few hours. In the same way, we need to ponder, we need to think, reflect, and process before we just say something. For example, how many times have you said something and then later on you had this thought, man, I wish I had given that more thought before I responded. I wish I'd have thought about it more. Now, maybe you've never thought about it this way, but we think, I'm going to blow your minds a little bit here. We think in two places. We think in our minds, but according to the Bible, we also think in our heart. And we know that our heart is the central focus of our physical being. We know that that muscle, it is the source of life. When it hurts, we are in serious trouble. When it fails, we die. In fact, before we go to bed this, tonight, this is what's going to happen. 2,500 heart attacks are gonna happen in America. Half of those will end in death, and that's why the American Heart Association is so concerned about the heart, but they're not alone. Understand, God is equally concerned about the heart, not from the physical sense so much, but from the spiritual sense. I mean, think about it this way. When we get together on the weekends, we, ad- we talk about, we address all kinds of issues, all kinds of topics, but in reality, whatever we're talking about, whatever series we're in, we are dealing with heart matters. In other words, our spiritual lives revolve around the spiritual muscle of our life, the spiritual heart. And so as you would expect, God had a lot to say about the heart. That's why the heart is mentioned 876 times in the Bible. Just in the book of Proverbs, Solomon alone refers to the heart over a hundred times. In fact, there's only three out of 31 chapters he doesn't mention the heart. But understand when the Bible talks about the heart, What does he mean? When Solomon talks about the heart, what does he mean? Well, for lack of a better term, he's talking about the whole inner person. It would include our motives. It would include our feelings, our affections. It would include our desires, our will. Uh, It would include our values. It would include our thoughts. It would include our intellect. It is the source of our passion. It is the spring of our conscience. So understand when we talk about the spiritual heart, we are talking about the most in-depth part of the spiritual life. It is the source. It is the origin of all we think, all we feel, all we do. Let me show you some verses that talk about the heart. Matthew 9, verse 4, knowing their thoughts... Jesus said, why do you tain evil thoughts? Not in your mind, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart, in your innermost person? Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For out of the heart, not the mind, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Luke 2, 19, we just talked about it. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them, not in her mind, in her innermost being, her heart. Luke chapter nine, verse 47. Jesus pursuing perceiving the thoughts of their, not their minds, their heart, took a little child and set him by him. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes, not of the mind, of the heart. 
So Jesus is saying that our hearts can think. Our innermost being can think. By the way, let me just, this is kind of weird. This is like Twilight Zone. But even medical science is, is, is getting in on this because now you can Google this stuff and it's on the internet, so it's gotta be real. And, uh, but seriously, I was actually talking to a cardiologist about this. When there are heart transplants, often the recipients of the heart transplant picks up some of the characteristics of the donor. There's one lady, her name was Clara Silva. When she recovered enough, her family was standing around the table. They said, what would you like? She replied, she would like to have a beer. It surprised everybody around her because she hated beer. Over time, she developed cravings for green peppers and KFC nuggets. Later on, she met the family of the one who donated the heart and they said that he loved beer, green peppers, and KFC nuggets. I mean, how weird is that? There's another one about a factory worker, 47 year old. He received the heart of an African-American teenager who was killed in an accident. After the accident, he got this craving for classical music. And he would tell his wife about it and she'd well, that's just silly. And he laughed about it. Maybe the person who gave me the heart loved classical music. And the wife said, no, 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 he was African-American. I'm sure he only liked rap. See, there's a redneck. This probably took place in Alabama or something, right? But guess what? They finally met the family of the teenage boy and he was a classical violinist. Do, 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 do. So you, I mean, I'm just saying, okay, it has nothing to do with anything. But then, let me tell you why I'm sharing this stuff with you. Right now, some of you are on the internet. Okay, get off of it, get back, okay. When we pause and think about something, this is my point, we can think about it in our heart, in our innermost being, not just in our mind. I mean, have you ever said, off the top of my head, this is what I think? Would, wouldn't it be better if we responded to something from the bottom of our heart, our innermost person, instead of the top of our head? I mean, we've all said things to people that we later regretted, and we had to go back and clean up the mess, and we had to go back and apologize, and we probably said something, I want you to understand, I know I said that, but that's not really what's in my heart. You ever said that? And it's true, that's not what's in your heart. See, that's what was in your head. That was what was in your mind. But understand this, when we become Christians, according to Paul, this is what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. We become brand new creatures. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. What's he talking about? He's talking about our heart. He's talking about our innermost being. He's talking about that inner person. So I kind of had this thought. Let me give it to you. We should let our converted heart tell our renewing mind what to say. I mean, just stick with me. Remember we did the series Taking Flight and we talked about Romans chapter 12, verse two. Paul said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And how do you renew your mind? We said it's like refinishing a piece of furniture. You gotta take off the old, you gotta put on the new. In the very same way, we have to look into our minds and we have to identify the lies that we have believed before Christ that shaped how we lived our lives. Sometimes we learn them from culture. Sometimes we learn them from our family. Sometimes we even learn them from religion, but they don't line up with God's word. So we have to find those lies, remove those lies and replace them with the standard, the truth of God's word. And Jesus said in John 8, 32, when you do that, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. So why don't we let our converted hearts, our innermost being that is brand new in Christ, work in conjunction with our renewing minds before we speak? You think it would make a difference? What if before we spoke, 
we thought, what does God's word say on this? But here's a bad one. How would Jesus handle this situation? How would he respond to this situation? See, that's letting your converted inner man, working with your transforming mind, teaching you how to speak. But if that's gonna happen, we gotta learn to pause first of all. And then we gotta learn to ponder, reflect, process before we speak. Now here's the last one, pray. And I'm gonna tell you right now, this is the most important one. Let me show you an incredible passage, passage, one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible, Isaiah chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What a vision this was. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now notice this, at the sound of their voices, the doorpost, the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So think about this. When Isaiah, is, he's, he's in this presence of God, and the very first thing he thinks about, when he's in the presence of God, the very first thing that he thinks about that comes to his mind is his mouth. Look what he says in verse five. This is Isaiah speaking. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. But this is what I want you to see. Isaiah didn't say, here am I, send me, until he had been in the presence of God and he had this encounter with God. And when he went into God's presence and he had this encounter, you know what he realized? Wow, I got a potty mouth. And not only that, I'm surrounded by a whole lot of people with potty mouths. And the first thing Isaiah thought was God, I can't control this area of my life. I can't control my mouth. I can't control the words that come out of my mouth. I need help. This is what I learned from Isaiah chapter six. I need an encounter with God every day. I need to be in the presence of God every day. Not just to read a few verses from the Bible so I feel good about reading a few verses from the Bible. I need to see God every day. I need to be in his presence every day because this is what happens. When I get into the presence of God, I'm reminded of my faults. I'm reminded of the sins that come out of my mouth and I can confess my faults and I can confess my sins. I can then go to the person and make it right. And then when I do that and the bridge has been built back, I can be used by God to impact the people in my life that he has placed around me. Not because I'm good, not because I'm talented or gifted, not because I went to seminary, not because I'm so spiritual. I am probably the least spiritual pastor, I'm just gonna be honest with you, you're ever gonna meet in your life. 
I can only do it because I've spent some time in the presence of God. A few weeks ago, we were in the series, Hashtag Amen. And remember I talked about talking to God and, and going boldly before God. But then the second week I talked about, you gotta listen to God. Because if you don't listen to God, you're not gonna be on track with what God has for your life. You gotta be in his presence to hear what he has to say. And I shared just some things that God has done in my life during my one-on-one time. And last week, I, I, just, I, just, I just thought I wanted to share this with you this weekend. Last week, I told you we decided that we were going to sell our house in 12 Oaks. And I joke a lot about 12 Oaks. It's just a neighborhood like any other neighborhood. They got golf carts. I think that's kind of weird. But I mean, it's, it's, it's still a good neighborhood. But we never planned on living in 12 Oaks. In fact, we lived in Apex. We had a beautiful home. We decided we were going to downsize. We were going to build our forever home, which is one of the cheesiest things I've ever heard in my life. But we were going to downsize. It was going to be where we were going to spend our retirement. And uh, Laura had designed this little ranch. She had planned it herself. Uh, we had a builder friend in the church. He said, I can build it for you. We found a lot. We, it was a ranch. You know, it takes different size. We could not make the numbers work. So I saw my friend at church one Sunday and I knew it was stressing him out trying to make the numbers work for us. And I knew we were stressing him out, probably asking for too much. And finally I said, is this stressing you out as much as it's stressing me out? And he said, yeah. And I said, man, my, your, your friendship's more valuable to me than a dumb house. Let's just forget it. And we hugged and that was it. You know, we saved our friendship, you know, but we'd sold our house. And we were gonna move into an apartment and live while we built this little house. But I told Laura, I said, hey, this is silly. Why are we gonna move into an apartment? Move Maybe there's a house out, let's just go find a house. I mean, I, I wanted a downstairs master and I didn't want anybody in my backyard. That's all I cared about. I don't want anybody in my backyard. I don't wanna be on my patio and somebody looking at me from their patio. That's just weird. That's, that's, that's just what I wanted, right? <laughs> and so we drove out to 12 Oaks because there's so many families from Hope that live in 12 Oaks. So we drove out there and we walked into a parade home and it was beautiful. And we're like, well, first of all, it's nicer than we need. It's bigger than we need. It's more than we want to spend. We could afford it, but it was more than we wanted to spend. And so we just kept looking and we just kept going back to that house. We kept going back to that house. And I can still see this. One day we were in that house and Laura was standing in the family room area, just looking around. And I was kind of standing in the kitchen, leaning on the counter. I said, you love this house, don't you? She said, yeah. I said, then buy it. And she said, is it wise? I said, I, I don't know. I said, you know what, honey? We've been in the ministry for 37 years. We've been sacrificing for Jesus for 37 years, right? You can hear me saying it, right? Hey, you know what I said? I think we deserved it and I think we've earned it. And if you want to live in this house, let's buy this house. Bought the house, right? Well, working on this series. And, and start, so just so you know, these start months ago, okay? So these things have kicked my butt way before you ever hear them. There were two messages in particular that just really worked on me. One was last week, that if you're a teacher, you're gonna be held to a higher standard. And then the other one was the one I'm gonna share next week, because next week we're gonna make this transition and we're gonna turn to the positive and we're gonna start sharing with you some phrases that can change your life. And next week I'm gonna talk to you about the power of I love you, but from an agape love perspective. And we're just gonna dig into 1 Corinthians 13 next week. And I want you to see what love really is when you say you love somebody. But that message, and you'll see why this had an impact on me next week. So I'm working on this, this. At the same time, I mean, we just started getting it from every angle. People complaining about us living in this house. And it's not a mansion by any stretch of the imagination. My next door neighbors go to Hope, the two doors down go to Hope. You know, I mean, it's not like it's a mansion, but it's a nice house. And I had people start saying, I, I, we heard a pastor lives in that house. Yeah, that's my pastor. You know, and, and, and so we just started getting these complaints. And, and you know what? I, 
I told Laura, I said, hey, you know what? It's my fault. I mean, I, I kind of put a target on our back. And when I said, let's buy this house. And let me tell you, I'm not a victim. I, you know, I, I realize I live in a fishbowl. I'm not a victim. But I know that James chapter three, verse one said, hey, if you're a teacher, you're going to be held accountable. You're going to be held to a higher standard. So one day I'm at home and I, I got a little office there and I'm working, I'm looking out in the backyard and, and I'm, I'm working on something that has really nothing to do with this. And I felt this is what God said to me. You used to be more generous before you bought this house. And it's true. I went back and looked the year before we moved into that house, Laura and I gave, and I'm not bragging, I'm just telling you, this is part of the story. Laura and I gave 30% of our income away that year. A lot of it came back to hope and our tithe and giving. A lot of it, we were in our campaign wrapping up the Apex building. There's ministries we support, missionaries outside of hope. There are charities that we're a part of. Sometimes we just give people money because they're in need. We gave about 30% of our income away. First year we lived in that house, it dropped to 27%. The next year it dropped to 25%. It's probably going to drop to about 23 or 22%. We're still being generous, but this is what God said. You're not as generous as you used to be. And I thought, that's true. I said, I had always lived by this principle. Why does God give you more than you need? Not so that you can ratchet up your lifestyle. I believe God gives you more than you need so that you can help people in need. And so we decided, sell this house. Not worth it. Let's downsize. And this is really, 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 really downsize. Like I got, we got three cars, but the new house is only gonna have two car garage. Oh, Laura's gonna be walking. No, I'm just kidding, that's not true, that's not true. You guys pray for me. No, I get, one of my cars is up for sale. We gotta do this, we gotta do it. But let me tell you, here's the thing. I was talking to Laura the other day. I cannot remember the last time I had this much peace and joy. You tell you why. It's because, see, when that kind of thing happens, it's as if God picks you up and hugs you and says, I'm so proud of you. I spoke, you listened, you obey. It's as if God took a live coal off of the altar and touched me and says, Okay, now let's get it right. By the way, I was walking the other day. I'm into this. I'm getting old. So I, I, I used to lift all the time. I, don't, I lift like three days. And then the, every other day, I try to walk four miles in the morning. So I get up early. In fact, I got lost the other day because it was dark. I don't know where I was, you know? Stupid. But anyway, um, the other day when I was walking, I felt like I was feeling pretty good about the decision we made, right? And I... When I say God speaks to me, it's like, not like, Mike, this is the Lord. It's not like that. It's just, he communicates with your spirit. If, those of you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, right? So as I'm walking the other day, I'm just walking. And I think when Laura walks, she listens to like Hillsong. Because she always comes back and tells me about this song. I was listening to Ozzy Osbourne, Mama, I'm a Coming Home. That's, that's kind of my worship time when I'm walking. So I'm listening to Ozzy. And, I'm, 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 and it's as if God said to me this, by the way. That thing about you deserved it. Let me remind you what you deserved was hell. But I gave my son. And you earned it. Don't forget everything you have, I gave you. And I'm going to hold you accountable for what you do with it. I got to tell you, let me tell you something. Some of you, you're like, oh, 
I wish my Christian walk was like that. I wish I was so spiritual like that. Let me tell you something. You've tried your entire life. Let's get back to it. You've tried your entire life to control your mouth. And maybe it's not your mouth. Maybe, maybe it's other areas of your life. Let me just say this. And I'm going to kind of wrap this up and I'm going to throw you a curveball. Maybe the reason that these things are such a struggle for you is because you have just never truly been saved. You've never really responded to the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins. See, you're, you're, you're not a new creation because see, all the old things haven't passed away. You still battle them every day of your life. You're just not a Christian. But here's the good news. That can change right now. But this is what it will take. You have to lay everything down on the cross. And that's a spiritual way of saying this. If you're at church, but you're not a Christian, I'm telling you, you're depending on something. It may be the fact that I'm in church. Me and God are going to be okay. Hey, I gave some money to the hurricane relief fund. Me and God are okay. I serve down at the grocery store every once in a while. Me and God are okay. I don't kick the neighbor's dog as much as I used to. I'm telling you, me and God are tight, right? But I'm telling you, one question God's going to ask you when you show up at the pearly gates and it's simply going to be this, why would I let you in? And if your answer is not because your son Jesus Christ died on my behalf and shed his blood for my sins and I accepted that gift and I surrendered my life to you. See, that's what I mean laying everything at the cross. You got everything you're trusting in to be in a relationship with God, you got to set it aside and you got to transfer your trust to what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. And that can happen right now at all of our campuses. So I just want to do this. I just want us to bow. And I know this is about the tongue, and this is about the tongue, because until you get into the presence of God, it ain't ever gonna change. And you're never gonna get into the presence of God until Jesus Christ, through what he did for you, reconnects you with him. So I'm gonna ask you to bow, and I'm just gonna, I would just ask you for a second just to search your heart and ask yourself before I close in prayer, am I really a Christian? Not do I go to church, not did I go through confirmation. Not do I try to be a good person. Not even do I try to obey the Bible. Have you ever gotten to the point where you remember saying, Jesus, I accept what you did for me on the cross when you shed your blood. I accept that to pay for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the dead three days later to verify that you were the son of God the only one who was capable of taking away my sins. And I transfer all of my trust from me and what I want to do to be in a relationship with you to Father, what your son has done for me. And I'm trusting in Jesus. Father, right now, I pray that people will make that decision. Because this isn't a mouth issue. It's not a word issue. It's not a house issue or a car issue. It's not a greed issue, it's a heart issue. And until our hearts are transformed, until they're created new, nothing's gonna change, nothing's gonna change. And I pray right now for those praying this prayer that they will sense a presence in their life of you like they've never felt before. A sense that you're saying to them right now, welcome home. This is where you belong. You're my child. And Father, that's where we start. 
And these other things that we yeah, have, these are things that you're going to work on in our lives. But that's where we've got to start. Take us into your presence. Transform our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download our app to find ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in the relationship with Jesus.